how are you guys doing this weekend? You guys doing good? The 4th of July crowd is strong. It's good to see you. I want to welcome anybody uh, joining us from our other locations or maybe you're tuning in online. And uh, before we get going today, I just want to uh, take just a, a quick minute and uh, just share a few things with you to kind of celebrate some of the things that God's been doing in the life of our church this summer. And uh, so we sent about uh, 777 kids and students to CIY in camps this summer. The more that we've sent in any other year. And if we were to kind of, uh, the number I'm really, really excited about is between last weekend and this week, weekend, 76 teens who went to camps and CIYs got baptized uh, this weekend. Um, out of uh, that 700 number, 127 rededicated their lives to Christ and 11 said that they felt called to full-time ministry. So that was just incredible to see that uh, happen over the summer, just in the last month. And uh, I had, I heard so many stories of uh, just volunteers and difference makers, like taking time off of work, taking vacation time to go and to serve our kids at camp and CIY. And they just went above and beyond, uh, not to mention the fact that I just believe that we have one of the most uh, uh, talented kids and student ministry teams on the planet. And so can we just um, thank them for all their effort and their time. And, uh, you know, uh, we, uh, we, we've been doing, we're going to be doing some baptisms today, but I wanted to share this number with you. I thought it was pretty cool. You know, all of last year, 2022, we baptized 421 people. Well, we're at six months into the year. We've baptized 435. We've already succeeded that just in this uh, month. And uh, we had our uh, Rooted celebration on Tuesday night. We've had uh, over 1,100 people graduate from Rooted in just in the last six months. And um, uh, Tuesday night, uh, we baptized, I think it was about 50 people that had come through. I, my back is still sore from uh, Tuesday night. And so just really amazing to see uh, what God has been doing in uh, the life of our church. And, you know, it's, it's summertime. It's kind of 4th of July weekend. I think this is the time for all of us to kind of downshift a little bit, to kind of Sabbath rest as we sort of, like we're not taking time off of God, but we are learning the, uh, just to, to rest. And then to recognize, as we kind of look uh, to, the, to the fall, all that God might do. And so I just want you to know, uh, I'm going to be taking this month uh, to study and uh, do a little bit of travel. Lindsay and I are taking our oldest daughter uh, on a trip, just the three of us. Uh, we leave this next week. And then I'll be taking the rest of the month just to study, plan, pray, looking ahead to the uh, fall. And um, the first weekend in August, I'll be back and we're switching our service times that weekend. So I just want to draw your attention back to that and uh, take a look at the service times at your particular campus. Uh, for a handful of campuses, we're adding at 8 a.m. So I just want to encourage those of you that are early risers, you're on mission with us to maybe consider going to that eight o'clock as we just kind of make room for, for more people uh, into the fall. And can I just ask this of you, would you, would you just be praying? Just, just be praying towards what God's going to do um, in the fall season. Uh, in the life of our church and expect him to do uh, big, big things as we've already seen him just work in tremendous ways the first six months of this year, all right? Well, if you got a Bible, go ahead and uh, find First John chapter five. First John chapter five is where we're gonna be today. And as you're um, finding that and kind of getting settled in, um, I wanna ask you if you would just help me finish these very, very familiar sentences, all right? Uh, there is nothing new under the, yeah, you've heard it before. Um, history repeats itself. Yeah. The more things change, the more they... Yes, and one more. What goes around comes around. Yeah, you, you've heard it before. And the reason why you've heard it before, these are kind of these familiar sayings and cliches is because there's a lot of truth behind it. Um, history repeats itself. Uh, Winston Churchill one time said this, those who don't know their history are doomed 
to repeat it. And we see evidence of this in every area of life, but maybe none so more clearly than in fashion, right? Fashion just has a tendency to just kind of come around again. You know, what used to be in is out, what's, what's out, you know, is in. And, and I've just kind of noticed this here lately is that um, the 90s seem to be making a little bit of a comeback. Have you noticed this? Kind of for better or for worse? You know, it's like tie-dye shirts are apparently kind of coming back into style. Like, and I don't even know if that was original with the 90s. I think it was original with the 60s. And then it went out of style, then it came back. And uh, I remember uh, saving up my allowance to get a pair of these, uh, Doc Martens. You remember these? Like, it's like, man, I remember like, and now they're, they're coming back. Like they're back. I remember there was a time where they were kind of not cool after a while. And I threw them out and now they're in style again. And, uh, you know, uh, high platform shoes are kind of coming back. And then I never, ever thought that I would see this trend come back. Mom jeans. Like mom jeans are apparently like back in style uh, because history, you know, sort of repeats itself. And not just in fashion, but in every realm of life. And in fact, let me uh, describe a certain cultural moment that a set of Christians found themselves in. And then you try to guess what era I'm talking about. All right, so here's the description. Uh, the culture is incredibly confusing, chaotic, and divided. Uh, pressure and temptation are so intense and so constant that many are wrestling with whether they should hold on to Jesus or let go and walk away. Ideologies and agendas are being pushed to the point that it's becoming disorienting. In fact, it's been revealed that some Christians and even some pastors no longer believe what they used to, and now they're misleading others. And many have deconstructed their faith, and they've walked away, and it's really discouraging and disorienting. Now, if you had to guess what time in history I'm referring to, what would your guess be? And some of you may go, well, I don't know, it kind of sounds a lot like today. Well, I'm actually describing the 90s. Now, not the 1990s, 90s AD, about 60 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And this is the cultural moment that John writes these three little letters at the end of our New Testament, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, to a group of Christians who, a lot like us, found themselves in a very confusing, divided, disorienting culture, revealing to us that we are not living in unprecedented times. We hear that phrase a lot. We heard it a lot through the pandemic. You know, these are unprecedented times, but, you know, pandemics are recorded all throughout history. What we, what we should say is these are uncharted waters perhaps for us, but it's not unprecedented. Like we've been here before. And that's one of the things that I want you to see as we kind of wrap up this series in the letter to, to 1 John is that John is writing to very, very similar cultural circumstances that you and I are living in today, which means that the application that they had for them then can still be the same application for us today. We've been calling the series Love and War. And the reason why is because John likes to use sharp contrast to make his point. And there's a tension between the two. John's favorite was light and darkness. And love and war seem to be these two words that seem to be in sharp contrast with each other. But the reason why we're using it is because it keeps coming up in John's writing. John wants to make us aware of the war that we are in because you cannot win a war you're not aware of. But he makes it really clear that we're not fighting like a, a physical war, like we're not fighting a culture war or a political war, or even an ideological war. John is saying, hey, we're fighting what Ephesians 6 does so well to describe, 
um, a spiritual war. The principalities and powers of darkness behind the scenes that are seeking to, to sort of uh, disillusion us. And so we've got to recognize who our true adversary really is. And John would say the way in which we win this war is love. Now, we've also got to define that. Well, what does that mean exactly? And so John's been going back and forth describing what the love of God means and describing this war that we are in. And uh, one of the primary themes, if you've been with us through this series, is John in the same sentence will provide us with an assurance of our faith. And then before the sentence is even over, he brings about conviction of sin. And it is within the tension of having assurance of where we stand with God and then conviction of our sin that brings about transformation. So we're not going to let go of conviction and succumb to the culture. And we're not going to dig our heels in and go to war with the culture. But we're going to allow God's love to transform who we are so that his presence in our lives is evident and undeniable to the culture. That's why John writes. And so as we come to the end of the letter, we'll see that the end kind of begins like, the, or ends like the, it did at the, the beginning, where John at the very beginning tells us why he's writing. And now before he wraps up, he's gonna remind us once again as to why he's writing. Uh, look with me at verse 13. He says, I have written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So John is saying, hey, here is my target audience. This is the bullseye of who I'm writing to. Those who believe in God. It doesn't mean that those who don't believe in God won't get anything out of this because the Bible is living and active. It, it penetrates our lives. You don't just read, study, dissect, and explain the Bible. The Bible reads, studies, and dissects you. And so John says, hey, hey this is applicable to everybody, but I want to be really clear. The bullseye of my target is those who believe in the Son of God. And then check out what he says at the end of that verse. So that you may, what's the word? Know. Like, so that you may know you have eternal life. He doesn't say, hey, so that you might wonder if you have eternal life. You, you might cross your fingers and hope you might have eternal life. So that you might guess. No, he goes, no, I want you to know. And the word for that is assurance. Now, why does John keep reassuring us all through uh, the letter? Well, I think it's because, you know, we, we need it. And I don't know about you guys, but, you know, at times I can second guess and I can become paranoid and I can kind of wonder not only where I stand with God, but where I stand with you and where I stand in relationship with others. And so John just continues to come back to this and he says, hey, guys, I, I want you to, to know. And why is assurance so critical? I think a couple of reasons. The first is simply this. Um, God really does love you, and John wants us to know it, like without a shadow of a doubt. Now, the unfortunate thing with the phrase, God really loves you, is that we've turned it into a bumper sticker. And it's sort of like, it's it sort of lost its meaning. I mean, that is a profound statement, that the creator of the universe knows you and loves you. And yet it's a, it's a statement that doesn't necessarily like impact us as emotionally as, as what it should. Because I think that maybe um, it's become kind of cliche or surface level. But I want us to kind of stop and camp on that for just a minute. Like God really does love you. And I just wonder if there's anybody, anyone here that like, if I were to put you in a corner and ask you if you believe it, you'd say yes, but you really haven't received it. 
Like, I don't know about you guys, but there have been plenty of times in my life where it's like, I know God loves me. I just don't know if he likes me because I've messed up so many times and he knows I'm so inconsistent. And yet John wants us to know, like, God really loves you. And here's why this is so powerful. When you love someone, like, think about somebody that you genuinely love with no uh, ulterior motive or no outside agenda. Then you want them to know it. Like you're not going to keep them guessing. You're not going to play games with them or keep them, you know, walking on thin ice around you. You want them to know it because that transforms the relationship. I remember the very first time that I told my wife, Lindsay, when we were dating, I told her that I loved her. And it was really, really scary for me for the obvious reasons. Um, But uh, the the other reason is that there was only one other girl that I had ever told that I'd loved uh, that I'd been dating. and And it didn't go well. And so I, I was going to have look PTSD from some of that, you know. And so like, I, I remember like I told this girl that I loved her. I don't think I really loved her. I think I was just really, really infatuated. And I could tell she was going to break up with me. So this was like a last ditch Hail Mary effort, you know, to try to convince her, to, which is not wise, by the way. Like if you're dating and taking notes and you sense somebody might be breaking up, don't try to get them to stay with you by telling them that you love them. And I remember she just looked at me. She got she, her eyes glassed over and she goes, um, those are big words. And that was like it. That was like, that was in the end of the relationship after that. So whenever uh, I was dating Lindsay and, and we were, I don't know, six, seven, eight months into this. And I, and, I, and I knew that this was more than infatuation. And I knew I really loved her. And I wanted to tell her that. I wanted her to know where she stood with me. And it scared me. But I remember when I told her, I remember she looked right back at me and she said, I love you too. And there was just this like sense of relief and security in the relationship. Now, that's a romantic relationship. But when you think about any, di- any relational dynamic that you have with your boss, with coworkers, with friends, uh, with a spouse or your children, um, it's a power play to keep somebody guessing about where they stand with you. And maybe you've had that in some relational dynamic in your life. And if that's the case, whether you're playing games with them or they're playing games with you or you kind of want to maintain a position of power over them, that is cancer to the relationship. And so here's what John is trying to be really clear with is that we serve a God like the Christian faith is about a God who wants to be clear. Like most other belief systems are vague. It's do your best. You know, try to achieve the thing, learn as much as you can, and hopefully you'll be okay. But God is very, very clear about his righteous requirements and how he feels for us because he doesn't just want a bunch of uh, subjects that will just sort of like follow after him by checking our brains at the door. God desires a relationship. And so he tells us flat out how he feels about us. So you might write this down. Real, authentic love can only grow in the soil of security. See, when you make somebody behave by threatening or manipulating them, you might coerce their behavior, but you will never captivate their heart. And that's why as Christians, when we're seeking to live out our faith and be on mission for Jesus in this very, very divided, confusing and disorienting time, we've got to realize that it is impossible to um, moralize or to argue somebody to Jesus. Like you just can't do that. Um, you, if, you tried to, if you could argue somebody into a relationship with Jesus, <laughs> all that's going to be required is a better worded argument to get them out of it. 
No, what we desire to do is to live out and to explain the gospel message and to trust that the Holy Spirit is at work in the lives of people to bring them to a saving faith because we're not trying to win an argument. We're not trying to convince them. We're trying to bring this to this place where the very presence of Jesus can transform them. And I see right now like these two really dramatic extremes happening in our culture. And over the last 50, 60 years, as we've seen culture become more brazen in their defiance of truth, I think that um, we, we find ourselves as Christians maybe somewhat confused and, and disoriented by all of that. And the response for some is to cave in and the response for others is to sort of rise up. And so I see these like kind of two, remember the tug of war thing that I gave a few weeks ago between hedonism and legalism? And so right now I, I hear this sentiment from a lot of people within culture and even from a lot of like some Christians is like, you know, uh, we just need to tell people to follow their truth. And then the other side kind of rises up and says, no, we just need to hit them with the truth. And the gospel message is in the tension in the middle. And so we need to realize, like, if you were to have, like, let's just say, uh, you know, on Tuesday, 4th of July, you have a bunch of people over to your house for a meal, big, big family and friends gathering, and you have babies at the table and you have elderly people at the table and everybody's got to eat, you're going to pay attention to what kind of food is being served and how you serve it up so that people can receive the nutrients. And so, like, you know, some little babies are going to need to be spoon-fed and some elderly adults maybe need to be spoon-fed, you know. And uh, others are going to need to have the meat cut up and uh, some are going to need to have jello and some are going to need to have milk and some are going to need to have something more substantial. And so when it comes to serving up the truth of the gospel, I think, you know, when I want my kids to receive nutrients, I could take a steak and jam it down their throat and likely they're not going to receive it or I can cut up the steak. And so we need to recognize as within the culture in which we live, especially as the extremes get wider and wider and things get more and more divided, as Christ followers, we hold on to Jesus and we recognize the truth of Colossians 4. Live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be, here's the descriptive words, gracious and, and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. First Peter 3 says, if somebody asks you about the hope you have as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But then he says this, but do this with gentleness. Do this with respect. See, see we're not trying to coerce behavior. We're trying to give people the opportunity to have Jesus captivate their heart. And, and we've been here before. The church in Martin Luther's day believed that people would only obey if they were threatened with harsh consequences for their rebellion. And Luther didn't see that in the scriptures. And so he decried that posture. Here's what he called it, a damnable doctrine of doubt. And here's what he said. Yes, being afraid of judgment will indeed produce a surface level adherence. But underneath that thin veneer of obedience will rush a river of fear, pride, and self-interest. The only way to develop real love for God is to have fear removed. Love for God only grows in the soil of security. 1 John 4, 19 says, we love God, why? Because we were commanded to? No, because God loved us first. And having the assurance that the love that God has for us is what produces genuine love for God in us. 
And that naturally leads to the next thing that John writes in verse 14. Look, look at it with me. He says, because of this, we are confident that he hears us whenever we ask for anything that pleases him. And since we know he hears us when we make our requests, we also know that he will give us what we ask for. Now, I don't know about you, uh, but the cynic within me rises up when I read those two little verses. Doesn't it to you? It's like, you know, John just said, hey, you know, hey, we, we can be confident that God hears us when we ask for anything that pleases him. And then since we know that he hears us, we can make our requests known and he'll give us what we ask for. And yet every single one of us can probably say, yeah, but I've prayed some prayers before and I don't know that God heard me. Or I've prayed some prayers before and, you know, God didn't answer uh, that request. But the, the key to this is found in that, in that little those little words at the end of verse 14 when it says, when we ask for anything that pleases him, and all that means is when we ask for anything that is in alignment with his will for us. That just simply means that God sits from a seat in which he has a perspective that you and I don't have. Like he's all-knowing, he sees time all at once. And so there may, and certainly this is true, for the older that I get, the more I realize as I go back and maybe look at some old prayer journals or look at some seasons of my life in which I genuinely thought what I was asking God for, that the, the, the rock solid answer to this should be yes. And now with a little bit of time and perspective, 10, 15, 20, 25 years later, I realize, no, actually the best answer to that prayer was no, because my perspective has been changed. So God answers um, every single prayer we pray. Now, whether he answers it the way you want is another issue. The, the way he, uh, the, the timing in which he answers it, that's the big, big issue. Um, and I think for many of us, we want a vending machine God. You know, let me just put in the thing, you know, give me the prayer right away. But God can say yes to re your request, which we all love a good yes. That's why we pray those prayers. I don't know about you. I've never prayed a prayer asking God to say no. If there's any prayer that I pray, it's like, God, please say yes to this. He can say yes. Uh, he can say no. I would say uh, maybe the majority of the time he says wait. And uh, there have been plenty of times when in my life I've interpreted wait as no. But it wasn't no, it was wait. And it's in the waiting that formation takes place. It's in the waiting that God begins to organize some things. Uh, several years ago, um, I uh, saw a pair of Air Jordan 5s online for 100 bucks. No laughter. So no, no Air Jordan uh, fans here, right? Uh, 100 bucks. Like that should have uh, keep me off to the fact that these were not real. All right, these, these were fake. And so 100 bucks, I was like, oh man, I gotta, I gotta snatch these up. And I ordered them. Eight weeks go by, nothing. And uh, I, I, I'm emailing this little company, this shady little company on the other side of the world. You know, I'm like emailing them, you know, where's my shoes? And I got, finally got back to this message. It said this, um, shoes on boat, wait longer. <laughs> and that was my first tip. These are fake, right? And sure enough, man, I got them in the mail. They, they, were, they were made out of cardboard. It was awful. Um, but, you know, oftentimes um, this is, you know, in, in the book of Daniel, Daniel, you remember this? Daniel prays, prays a prayer. And he doesn't hear anything. And then finally the angel shows up one day, I would imagine out of breath, and says, Daniel, as soon as you prayed that prayer, heaven dispatched me to answer your prayer. And I got hung up in spiritual battle behind the scenes. There is a whole lot going on 
behind the scenes that we need to recognize. I, I want you to, to, to hear me say this. I think that uh, as a father, like I know this to be true, like if my kids make a request of me as their dad, I'm always looking for a yes. If there's a way for me to say yes to them, I'm gonna say yes. The only way that I'll say no is uh, if what they're asking is illegal, which I don't know that that's ever happened. That'd be really concerning. Um, or if I just know that it would uh, hinder the development of their character, or if I know that it's just flat out the wrong request and they can't see it from their perspective. But if it's anything else, I'm looking to say yes. This is what John is driving at here. And then he says something, verses 16 through 17, I think the most confusing in the whole letter, but there is a, an explanation for it. But notice, you're gonna see what I mean as we read this. Look at verse 16. He says, if you see a fellow believer sinning in a way that does not lead to death, right? So hold on to that little phrase. He says, you should pray and God will give that person life. In other words, God's gonna bring this person back. God's gonna be at work in their life. But there is a sin that leads to death and I am not saying you should pray for those who commit it. So right there, that's confusing. Those two dichotomies there. We gotta understand what he means by the sin that leads to death. And he said, all wicked actions are sin, but not every sin leads to death, right? So thanks, John, for being clear as mud. Um, here, here's uh, uh, what we know, is that um, I think it's very clear that his original audience knew what he meant by the sin that leads to death because he doesn't take time to explain it. I think they would have known. For us today, though, it, we're left with a little bit of a difficulty in understanding fully what he meant, but uh, we do have some clues. So uh, commentators offer up a few suggestions. So number one, we just have to start with this baseline. Because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that has led to death, a, a general death. Your body is going to give out 80 to 90 years or, uh, you know, that's about the mileage that we've got. And this, this world is broken because of sin. So that's all sin leads to death, that very generally. Then you've got a sin that leads to death specifically. And he's not talking so much about a physical death, but a spiritual one. And I think that's what the original audience would have understood. A spiritual death. So uh, what is that? Well, um, two things come to mind. Blasphemy, the Holy Spirit, and apostasy. So a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, if I could define it, would just simply be this. A deliberate, open-eyed rejection of known truth. It's a verbal, knowledgeable, and it's continual. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 said, Esau hardened his heart to the point that repentance was impossible. And a lot of times we get a little bit freaked out by that, you know, sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because we say it's the only unforgivable sin. We're like, well, I certainly don't want to commit that if it's the only unforgivable sin. How do I know I haven't committed it? And I would just simply say, if you're worried if you've committed it, you haven't committed it. Does that make sense? I don't think so. So, so it's the idea that uh, conviction of sin reveals that you are still connected to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is what and who convicts you of sin. And so if blasphemy of the Holy Spirit means you're so hard-hearted, like you no longer feel conviction. That's what that is. The other is um, what we might call apostasy. And this is what John was contending for in this letter. And we see this a lot today. Apostasy, a total rejection of Jesus as the son of God and a denial of the faith. You formerly gave lip service to him. You formerly said he was Lord and Savior. But now you full on have deconstructed and denied the faith, walked completely away from him. And so John is drawing this distinction here. 
And he says in verse 18, we know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning. Think free throws in the driveway, right? Like you're practicing at something you're trying to perfect. He goes, yeah, God's children are going to continue to sin, but we're not perfecting it. And he says, for God's son holds them securely and the evil one cannot touch them. And that's good to know. Verse 19, we know that we are children of God and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. Uh, verse 19 should bring about a lot of explanation as to why there's so much pain in the world. We're under the control of the evil one. Here, I've heard it described this way. Satan is like a chained rabid dog. You get close enough to him, he's going to bite you, but he's chained. He only has a certain reach. And so he says that uh, God's children means that we're, we're sort of, uh, um, that he's got us. He's, he's holding us securely in this world that is controlled by the evil one. And he says that we are not going to premeditate or hold on to or persist in or practice sinning. Are we still going to struggle and fall occasionally? You bet we will. And when we do, we recognize it, we see it, we turn from it. And real Christianity is us, not, it's not us white knuckling morality. Man, if you've ever tried to white knuckle morality, then you know, some of you can testify to this, all you do is give that vice or temptation more power over you. What happens as you come to God is that it is the death to your former self and new life. It is a renewal of your mind and your heart. And God gives you a new set of desires. Some of those happen right away. Some of those happen over time as we grow. You know, when I was growing up, I absolutely hated Brussels sprouts. And if you would have told me when I was a kid that I would order them as an appetizer, I would have told you you were crazy. Man, I love them now because what happened? Did, that, did the Brussels sprout change or did I change? You know, it's like I've got to like it. Well, the bacon, cooked in bacon helps, all right? So, but, but I've got a new set of desires, like a, a new set of tastes. And the same thing is true as it comes to our tastes and desires in this world. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it says this. Don't copy the behaviors and customs of the world, but what? Let who? Let God transform you into a new person by changing the way, not you behave, changing the way you think. And then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good, pleasing, and perfect. So God doesn't change us by standing in front of us and beating the sin out of us if we touch it. God changes us by giving us a new heart, which means you gotta be born again. Like you've, you've gotta be born from above. And when that happens, God gives you a new set of desires. And we're still going to continue to struggle. But when we do, we get back up. I love how the book of Proverbs says it in verse 24. It says, the righteous man falls seven times. Man, if somebody falls once, that's an accident. Somebody falls twice, that's unfortunate. Somebody falls seven times, check how you're walking, right? So, so the idea like, like somebody fell seven times and he goes, but rises again. And righteous people, I mean, you and I, like we're still going to fall. But um, when we get back up, we look to Jesus. Your salvation is not demonstrated by never falling. Your salvation is demonstrated by what you do when you fall. And conversion is not sinless perfection. It's a new direction. 
So when I fall, I don't say, well, that's just what I do. You know, I don't, when I fall, I don't try to hide it. When I fall, I don't try to uh, explain it away. When I fall, I say, man, I fell. And I'm going to own that. And I'm going to have contrition and humility. I didn't make a mistake. I sinned. And I'm going to stand back up and I'm going to look to Jesus. And look, look at what it says in verse 20. He says, and we know that the Son of God has come and he has given us understanding so that we can know the true God. And now we live in fellowship with the true God because we live in fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the only true God and he is eternal life. Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. Why? Because anything else that can take God's place in your heart is not enough to save. It's not enough to justify. It's not enough to give you your identity. And uh, some of you might be here today and you might be thinking, man, it, this just kind of seems like I don't really understand how this works. How is it that just by somebody saying that they believe in Jesus or calling on the name of Jesus, that somehow that makes them right in the eyes of God? That just kind of seems flimsy to me. That just kind of seems cheap to me. And I would, uh, say, I would say this to you, that when we say believe in the Son of God, what we're essentially saying is, is rest in the account of. So, so let me illustrate it this way. My kids love all-inclusive resorts. Can I get a good amen? Right? I mean, who doesn't love a good all-inclusive and uh, we took them uh, to uh, Cancun last summer. We had an all-inclusive. And, they, man, they were living like kings and queens. You know, they were going up. They were, like, ordering tacos from the taco truck. You know, they were ordering beach cabanas and, you know, breakfast buffets and, you know, ordering anything they wanted. They're like, this is amazing. You know, uh, like, they were acting like nobody had to pay. Somebody had to pay, right? But, but what they would do is they would just go up like on their own to this little kiosk or whatever and just be like, yeah, you know, charge it to this account. And that, that, so our, our, the perfect picture of this was um, our, our uh, room had a, like a jacuzzi in it and half the jacuzzi was in the room and then half the jacuzzi was outside on the deck and there was a TV kind of overlooking it. And we came into our room one evening and uh, my uh, youngest daughter, Cadence, she was 10 at the time. She's 11 now. She was 10. She was in a swimsuit with her goggles on, with the whirlpool going, watching TV, eating chocolate cake she had ordered from room service. <laughs> like just living her best life, you know? And I was like, honey, what is it? She's like, oh, I just ordered, I just charged it to the room, right? So what's happening here is they are resting in the account of me, right? That's, that's what's happening. So, so this isn't like nothing for free. This isn't cheap. You know, th this is costly, but they're resting in the account of. When we say put your trust in Jesus, that's what we mean. When we say like, I believe in Jesus. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about easy believism. We're not talking about like a loophole. We're saying this, I am not righteous enough. My moral bank account has zero dollars in it. But when I trust myself to Jesus, I am resting in the account of my heavenly father. You can't earn it. You cannot personally earn a right standing with God by writing checks from your moral bank account. That's religion. No, you charge it to his righteous account and he covers the bill. Now, here's the thing. Um, I'm glad to do that for my kids. Like, I want to do that for my kids. But it would be a big red flag if I saw that they were being harsh and greedy with one another. Like if she, like, like if Cadence wasn't willing to share that, that chocolate cake with anybody else. So she's like, no, no, I, I work for this. I, that's religion. 
uh, if uh, they were rude to the resort staff, uh, then I can cut them out right away. Right? Like, no, no more charging, right? No more charging because your heart's in the wrong place. If they were entitled, if they were making demands, that reveals to me that their hearts haven't been transformed. I'm glad to do this, but I want it to lead to greater uh, generosity of spirit in their own lives. I want to see their heart change. Colossians 3 puts this so well. Verse, the first three verses says, since you have been raised to life with new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits. I want you to circle, underline, highlight, write that word down. Christ sits. That, that's the idea that the work has been finished. So he sat down. When do you sit down? When the work's done. And Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And then in verse 10, it says this, put on your new nature and be renewed. That's a renewal of the mind. As you learn to know your creator and become like him. It's not just about learning information. It's about learning this information so that we can be transformed. And the gospel, you heard me say this a few weeks ago, is not an achievement. It is a standing and it is not dependent upon how much you know. And it's not dependent upon how much you do and how well you perform. It is first and foremost about you and me resting in the finished work of Jesus. And from that position, we can now grow. From that position, we can now take a stand on our convictions, but we first have to sit and we have to keep coming around to that position of sitting and resting in Christ. Otherwise, we begin to delude ourselves into thinking it's something that we perform or something that we achieve. So here's a good example of this. Like if I were to walk up to you and I were to say, uh, if I were to ask this question, are you a Christian? And your response is, I'm trying. Or if your response is, I'm, I'm, I'm learning. I'm reading a book right now. I'm, I'm trying to figure this out. Then all that shows me is that you still don't fully get it yet. And that you're still trying to super Mario Brothers this thing. You know, it's like, it's like well, I, I think there's more levels, you know. There's more levels I've got to achieve in order for me to, to finally feel justified in the eyes of God. So I want us to know, listen, if you are holding out because you've got questions and you want all your questions answered and once you get all your questions answered, then you come to Jesus, it doesn't work that way um, because that's not faith. Faith is bringing your unanswered questions to Jesus. And here's how Jesus prefers to answer the questions. He doesn't um, send you an email back with a full paragraph explanation for each question. He says, hey, actually, I'd like to walk with you through this. So you come to Jesus before you have all your questions answered and then he walks with you through it. And through that experience, you get your questions answered over time. Some of you are like, well, I just got to get my stuff together, man. Like my life is a mess. I got to clean out my life. It doesn't work that way. You come to Jesus with the mess and you say, this is me. And Jesus receives you as you are. And he's the one who cleans you up and begins this work of transformation in your life. Jesus finished the work on your behalf and you receive that and you rest in it. In the Old Testament, it provides a picture of this in Leviticus 1. It, it simply says this. 
talking about the Old Testament um, sacrificial system. It says, when you present an animal as an offering to the Lord, you may take it from your herd of cattle or your flock of sheep and goats. If the animal you present as a burnt offering is from the herd, it must be a male with no defects. Bring it to the entrance of the tabernacle so that you may be, and here's the key words, accepted by the Lord. Uh, all you do is you lay your hand on the animal's head and the Lord will accept its death in your place to purify you, making you right with him. Now, thankfully, we don't live in the Old Testament sacrificial system anymore. We live under the new covenant where instead of, uh, in, you know, I'm just so thankful. Uh, as I stood at the front door today watching uh, all of you walk in from the parking lot, nobody was carrying an animal around their shoulders. I'm so thankful for that. Like it would get messy in here real quick. Like we don't have to do that anymore. Why? Because that burnt offering, that, that animal sacrifice was a foreshadowing of the one true perfect sacrifice of God's son. Instead of you bringing that sacrifice to the temple, Jesus went to a cross. And so now um, the question is, in, what, in who or what are you trusting in to justify yourself? And this is the invitation of the gospel, is you rest upon the finished work of Jesus. And I know right now some, some of you be like, well, you know, th this is once again, the tension between evangelism and discipleship. It's like, well, well where's the challenge for people to grow? Or wh when do we stand up on our convictions? And that is a really, really good point. I wanna illustrate it this way. There's a little book that I'd highly recommend that you read this summer called um, Sit, Stand, Walk. And it's uh, written by a guy named Watchman Nee. And uh, it'll take you, I listened to it on Audible. It took me about an hour and a half to listen to it on Audible. It's based on the book of Ephesians. And in it, he says there are three positions that we must take with Jesus. Um, sit, stand, and walk. And he said, we've got to remember all three of those positions in the, in the Christian life. So, so sit is the recognition that we are justified by the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. And you simply sit in that. Like when I sit in this chair, I'm not extending any energy to, to keep myself up like I was just a minute ago. I'm resting completely and fully on this chair. Like if it wanted to give out on me, you know, I'd fall to the ground because I'm resting in it. And he says, that's the primary position that we have to come to with Jesus. And then from this position, then we are able to, at times there's gonna be a moment where we're gonna to need to get up, we're gonna to need to walk with Christ. You know, that's the most common analogy in the scriptures for our relationship with him is a walk. Like you, this is why we oftentimes describe it that way, my, 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 my spiritual walk. And as I'm walking with Jesus, that, that's growth, that's sanctification, that's digging the wells deep. And then as we've, as we've taken a seat in Christ and as we're walking with Christ, then when the opportunity arises, we can, take, we can stand. We can stand when life is hard. We can stand when maybe our faith is challenged. We can stand when the cultural winds blow against us. But we can't forget that first step and we can't fail to, to come back to it on a regular basis as Christians. See, see uh, rehearsing the gospel message and receiving the gospel message isn't just for the day of your salvation. It is for every single day thereafter. Because as human beings, we have a tendency to slip into religion and to begin to work for and to try to justify ourselves. And I just wanna encourage you today just to come back to this position. You just take a seat. You know, scripture says that Jesus is our mercy seat. 
and we rest completely in him. And so today I wanna to invite you to, to do that. For some of you, you haven't, you haven't taken a seat in a long time and you're exhausted and you've been running and you've been trying to grow and you've been taking a stand and you've been fighting the culture war and all that's fine and good, but it means nothing if you're not seated upon the person of Jesus Christ. The account of your heavenly father is what covers, is what covers you. So today I wanna to invite you to take a seat. That, that's for those of you that have never come to Christ before and that is for those of you that have been following him for a long time. You take a seat, you sit upon the finished work of Jesus. And then if you've never um, gone public with that, the Bible says that the first act of obedience is, is baptism. It's, and I think it's because we, we need something physical, we need something tangible to really kind of seal that internal commitment that we've made. That's what baptism is. It's just a death. It's a burial. It's a resurrection. It's, it's symbolic of cleansing, not dirt from the body, but a pledge of a good conscience towards God. And so today um, here at the Northwest Campus, I know we have a few planned baptisms, but we also just want to extend that on out. And maybe there's somebody today, you're listening to this and you're like, you know what? I need, I need to make that decision for myself. And I just want to invite you to, to come. We're ready for you. Like we've got a change of clothes. We've got towels. We've got dressing rooms. And uh, we'd love to receive you today. And uh, so I'm gonna turn it over to our uh, campuses and our campus pastors to provide instructions there. But uh, we've kind of backloaded the worship time so that way we'd have some time uh, to do this today. And so let me just pray. Father, we come to you right now and we thank you for this study in 1 John. And, and uh, it's so um, good to be reassured of who you are and where we stand with you and at the exact same time to be convicted of sin and convicted of where we need to grow. And we know that it's in the tension of those two. We don't want to let go of either one of those things. We can be transformed. So God, we live in confusing, disorienting, divided times, and uh, there are casualties of this spiritual war. God, keep us from one side that says truth is relative, there is no such thing as sin. And keep us from the other side that wants to drift into legalism and, and uh, become somewhat rigid and brazen. Keep us in the middle, God, where we hold on to the conviction of the truth of who you are, but we also recognize that we wanna always be ready to explain the reason for the hope that we have, but we do this with gentleness and respect, not to coerce behavior, but to captivate hearts. And we know that you're the only one that can do that. So God, today I pray that you'd move. We're gonna celebrate with these people that are going all in today. And we're gonna celebrate with some people who maybe came today. And uh, they were not planning on doing this, but they're gonna follow the prompting of the Holy Spirit to come. We ask this in Jesus' name.